Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And today, we're going to start a series in earnest here on not only the Corbinite Project and the transatlantic left, we're going to talk about the policy agenda for a post-neoliberal society. Jeremy Corbyn and his Labour Party in the UK are on the brink of power with the Tories in all kinds of disarray. It is quite likely that we may see a left-wing government in a major industrialized economy in the next six to eight months, or perhaps sooner, if Boris Johnson can't get his act together. Joining me on the program to kick off this series is the sugar daddy of the transatlantic left, as he has been named. We'll talk a little bit more about that. He is also the vice president for theory, research, and policy at the Democracy Collaborative, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C., and he's the executive director of the Next System Project. Joe Guinan, thanks so much for joining us. Delighted to be with you, Adam. I'm especially delighted to have the sugar daddy of the transatlantic left <laughs> on the air, live and in person. Talk to us about that title. Who gave it to you? And oh, uh, what could that possibly mean? It's exciting to me that the, that the socialist left has a sugar daddy at all. But what does that mean? <laughs> well, I'm not sure I should be encouraging this, but we've had a little fun with it at the collaborative. Um, this dates to uh, an article that appeared on our activities in the UK in The Economist magazine, the House Journal of Neoliberalism, which, uh, interestingly enough, has been a place that's been doing some of the most serious mainstream coverage of uh, of what's actually at the heart of the Corbyn agenda. Um, you get a fairer shake from from The Economist than you do from The Guardian most times these days, which is the, the odd times that we're in. But yeah, um, one of the things that we've been doing is some very modest support to kind of seed the ecosystem of policy thinking around the buildup of a, a democratic economy and a new economics. Uh, a few fellowships here and there, a little bit of support to emerging, interesting new institutions and think tanks like Commonwealth. It's just been launched in in the past few weeks. And so for the the our pains in, in spreading just some very modest resources around the um the Economist uh, described us as having muscled into the UK scene and uh, become the sugar daddy of the emerging <laughs> British left. So um, we're having a little fun with that, even though our resources are extremely modest by comparison with the dark money that's flooding in from the right. That's right. We can't compete with them in terms of money and capital and resources, but it just goes to show that uh, yeah, a handful of uh, plucky, well-placed personalities with some, some a good heart and some solid experience and the right intentions placed together in the same room, under the same roof, can accomplish quite a bit. So just a few months ago, a nice cohort from the transatlantic left for the Corbinite movement over in the UK made a trek over here. And you yourself are from there as well. You made this happen, it's my understanding. People that my audience will be familiar with, uh, Grace Blakely has been on the show previously. I met up with Peter Gowan, who is a, a writer whose work is oftentimes found in places like Jacobin. He's a fellow at the Democracy Collaborative as well. Matthew Lawrence, who I will be interviewing very soon, is the founder of the Commonwealth Project that you just mentioned. He's also one of the authors of the Inclusive Ownership Fund, uh, not only on uh, taken up by the Labor Party and the Manifesto, but also taken up in a really interesting way very recently by the Bernie Sanders campaign. 
and they made a trek over here. And you guys had some interesting conversations with some policymakers and some staffers of some well-placed senators and congresspeople. Talk to us about that journey and what this collaboration between the Corbinite left and this new budding, far more inexperienced and green socialist left in, in the United States. Uh, talk to about what that might what that might offer. What kind of promises there? Well, it's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think if five years ago you told me that the hope for the left internationally was going to fall on the shoulders of the British Labour Party and the left wing of the Democratic Party, I'd have raised an eyebrow to say the least. But history um, has a cunning, um, as we know. And, uh, and here we are with, on the one hand, this very interesting opportunity in the UK that we've just found irresistible from the point of view of our agenda, which is um, is the, the, the rapid development of a, a mass base for the Labour Party, the injection of a new energy, a new left-wing radical politics, and increasingly a well-developed policy platform about how to really go about transforming Britain's political economy beyond the neoliberalism of the last 40 years. And this has attracted attention over here in the United States, um, in particular among that budding movement that you talk about, the sort of explosion of interest in socialism, the growth of the democratic socialists of America and others, the, um, the sort of emergence of a new cohort of progressive young leaders in the Democratic Party and in increasingly in Congress. And they're looking across the Atlantic for ideas. And there's been a sort of funny roundabout route for some of these ideas. And we at the Collaborative have been working on the sort of elements and institutions of the democratic economy for a couple of decades, primarily here in the United States. But it seems like to really get the attention of the, um, the U.S. sort of political scene and, uh, and the promise of progressive take up here in the States, we actually had to, um, to go to Europe first and to get these ideas really sort of well embedded in the, in the Corbyn program. And that's where they've caught the attention of, of this increasing growing progressive cohort of members who are looking for dazzling policy ideas to um, to capture the energy and the enthusiasm that is there at the grassroots. And so you mentioned the inclusive ownership funds. Um, this is an idea that goes back to the Meidner plan in Sweden in the 70s and 80s, um, the idea of a share levy that dilutes the ownership of capital and begins to build up a, a worker stake um, in companies. Um, and John McDonnell picked up this policy that was developed by Matthew Lawrence and others in the UK and announced it at the Labour Party conference. And since then, it's one of the ideas that's begun to make the, the transatlantic journey over here. And we saw Bernie Sanders commit to doing something along those lines where we're waiting on the details. But it shows the promise, I think, of a kind of race to the top and a sort of transatlantic exchange on on policy of a kind that historically has happened and been very important in major shifts there was, of course, the, the creation of the post-war economic settlement, which really began with the New Deal in the States and, and was added to by the welfare states that were created in Europe, in particular the Attlee government. Then, of course, our current long, dark night of the soul under neoliberalism began with Thatcher and Reagan, elected within a couple of months of each other, unable to really spearhead the economics that we've been living under for 40 years. Uh, then there was, it's a far less transformational project, but certainly um, influential, the, the confluence of Clinton and Blair and the sort of third way sellout of social democracy to, to neoliberalism that really set the terms for that sort of hegemony of neoliberalism and consolidation of it in, in the last couple of decades. And now we suddenly see the potential of a radical break. And and it would be funny, wouldn't it? And ironic if, uh, if the first two countries that uh, in the advanced industrial world that that plowed into neoliberalism and took it the furthest, were the first to, to begin to emerge. 
history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it does rhyme. So we are looking at this this transatlantic confluence as a really important potential opportunity for for a kind of breakout in, in thoughts and in policy and hopefully soon in practice in government. It's an exciting time. There are a tremendous number of hurdles in in the way between uh, there, uh, between where we stand today and this vision that you've outlined for us in the intro. One of the ways that I, I think that the only way we're going to get there is by the steady hand of uh, people like yourself. And one of your recent contributions to that effort is a book that you've co-authored with Christine Berry. It's called People Get Ready, Preparing for a Corbyn Government. And uh, the subtitle says it all. There's a sense of urgency and duty and responsibility that really carries us through this entire book. The motto, if we could sort of uh, steal a phrase from the American or the Boy Scouts of America, rather, is uh, always be prepared. And it is the fear of not only yourself, but your co-host that in, in many senses, we're not prepared. We're not ready. And I think that's echoed in the United States for sure around the Bernie Sanders movement such that it's an exciting moment. It's a really amazing opportunity to have a president, presidential nominee, perhaps talking very principled uh, on the air and in the mainstream about socialist ideals, anti-imperialism, among many other policies and topics that he raises on a, on a daily basis and the enemies that he names. And yet so many people in the U.S. have a tremendous amount of ambivalence around this prospect and this project because they're concerned that well, we're just not prepared. So talk to me about this book and your effort to increase our level of preparedness on the transatlantic left. Absolutely. Um, we, Christine Barry and I sat down to write People Get Ready uh, last year in the, the late summer and early autumn. Uh, we wrote it very quickly in three months um, out of a sense that things are moving so quickly at the moment that this is no time for writing magnum opus type books. We needed a, something much more like a political pamphlet that met the urgent needs of the time. Um, and so we, we cranked out, people get ready very quickly. And the, the argument of the book um, is, is what you were saying, which is that for, you know, for decades, the left has been pretty much in an oppositional mindset um, where we've been, uh, the, we've been the, the forces of protest, of resistance. And yet suddenly the, um, the prospect has emerged of the actual conquest of state power in the UK by the Labour Party, which would be a very exciting development internationally with implications far beyond our own borders. And so we we were motivated by both a sense of, of hope and of fear. Hope um, because of the, um, the magnitude of the possibilities that having this radical leadership with a new mass membership base, the largest left-wing political party in Western Europe with the equivalent of a, a party member on every street corner in every community in, in the country and all the possibility that that brings. Um, and we saw that with the very exciting sort of near victory of the 2017 general election um, called to annihilate Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party, which um, at that point was 20 points behind in the polls. And what we saw was something that pollsters have never seen occur before in history, which was a surge of such a magnitude that it just carried Corbyn to something like, I think if there had been a, a different distribution of something like 3,000 votes, there would have been a chance of Corbyn and Downing Street in 2017. So we're certainly uh, within range um, and the, you know, we'll see what challenges are thrown up by the, the current developments in the Conservative Party. But it's certainly the case that we could well be in government. And so Christine and I, the, the fear part comes in 
when we contemplate that, when we understand um, that in some ways that uh, despite all the challenges and all the obstacles, getting elected might actually turn out to be the easy part and that the story begins then and not ends. And that's really what this book is about. Um, it's about preparedness for entering the state and trying to deliver a transformative political program in the face of the obstacles that we're then going to encounter when we're in government. And there's a number of those that we go through. We identify the, the problem that we're likely to face in economic terms from capital markets and from economic pushback. And uh, we do a little bit of a tour historically of uh, of the way in which left governments have been pushed into making so-called tough choices, which are really about abandoning the radicalism of their programs in the face of the demands of the money men of the city. Um, and so we explore a little bit the, the Mitterrand example, the experience of the labor governments under Wilson and Callahan, and also the recent problems that have emerged for Syriza in Greece, and even though they're not in office, uh, Podemos um, in, in Spain. And the kind of real-time struggle to marry the the radicalism of the movement with the um, the pressures and demands that are placed on the party. Then we also look at the obstacles that the British state, the oldest and toughest plutocracy in the world, as R. H. Tony put it, and uh, and how we're going to run into um, an, a machine in the form of the civil service that not only is established to deliver continuity between governments, but that also has been deeply inculcated with neoliberal and neoclassical economic thinking to the degree where even the basic models they use to make decisions about investment and other things are, are you know, have a massive thumb on the scale um, in the direction of financialized uh, neoliberal corporate capitalism and, and all that it brings rather than the types of economic models and approaches that that we're starting to see uh, developed and adopted as part of Corbynomics. And then we also look at the, the challenges of, of the movement and of the paradox of Corbynism, of the fact that we're now close to power, but that this has come about almost at the, the left's weakest moment historically. And therefore, we've captured the commanding heights of the Labour Party. We've got a radical policy agenda in development, but we're almost having to reverse engineer what we really need to underpin that, which is a, a robust, independent movement capable of being a critical friend um, to a Corbyn government, uh, mobilizing in support and defense of that government as needed, but also holding it to account and ensuring that it stays um, true to its course, um, despite the pressures that we're going to run into. And so we lay out some of the things that we think are missing in terms of movement infrastructure, in terms of leadership development, in terms of ideas and the think tank space and kind of set forth a bit of an agenda, really, for the left to, to move very, very quickly in a very short space of time to bring us to a position where we're more ready than we are today. There's a sense in this book, uh, not only rigor, tremendous amount of rigor and seriousness, but, but also, uh, you know, this contradictory soup, as you've outlined earlier, between fear and optimism. Optimism that we're on the brink, potentially, of something that could potentially represent an apocal shift if you will, in the trajectory of human civilization, <laughs> not to be, uh, not to overstate matters, uh, but we are also on the brink of civilizationally devastating climate change and all the rest yep. of it. So where we don't really have an option right now, uh, big ideas are, are the only realistic ways forward here. On the other hand, you, you mentioned in multiple places throughout the book that should this fail, we stand to set back the socialist project by at least a generation. 
And so not to, not to place, you know, to, not to put too high stakes on this thing, but that's, that's where we stand. And this book is a really excellent contribution in that respect. People should pick this up. And, uh, I say this as an American, as someone like yourself, who's standing in the United States, uh, I'd love to see this type of, uh, this combination, uh, be applied to the American scene, uh, where it's, it's desperately needed. There's something about the urgency of a Corbyn government that is very clarifying to the British left, I think. Uh, and you've mentioned this notion of critical friendship, and that imbues the entire book as well. Talk to me about this notion of critical friendship and what it means and the kind of seriousness and sort of eyes for the eyes forward state of the UK left right now is, is, a, is a real inspiration, I think, for the American left, or it ought to be. Talk to us about that. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, one of the motivating factors in in wanting to lay out the arguments that we put forth in this book was was a sense that we need to become very sophisticated um, in our radicalism. Um, and there are actually places historically we can look for for models and, and inspiration, including some unusual places, like actually the experience of the Thatcher government, which we treat quite extensively in the book. But the idea is that you know, there are almost two knee-jerk responses that come naturally um, to the left. Um, one um, being um, uncritical loyalty, and certainly there's been a need in this in the past few years um, to defend the Corbyn project against attacks from without and within that have been near constant, and the sort of dismissals, the condescension, the plotting, the attempted coups. The absolute failure to be able to obtain a fair shake in the mainstream media, including um, supposedly left liberal publications, uh, has meant that the um, the sort of posture of this this sort of half million member party, much of uh, much of which sort of is, is recent jo- rejoiners and joiners um, inspired by Corbyn, has been one of really wanting to defend this leadership against attack, and that's been important. But we're actually moving on now into a, a next phase where. We need to not get trapped in uncritical loyalty. But there's also the danger then is that if we do get a Corbyn government uh, and the minute that it starts to run into some of the challenges that we outline, which it certainly will in one shape or form, that there will be there will need to be tactical retreats or maneuvers. There will need to be strategic postponements. There will need to be sequencing of the way in which we go about trying to bring about massive transformation. And the other danger there is that the immediate knee-jerk response is is cries of betrayal. And the left has has long loved a good betrayal story, not least because we faced many of them. And you know the examples of previous Labour governments are are a warning in that regard. Um, sort of the the jettisoning by Wilson at the sort of earliest point of uh, of the sort of expansionary Keynesian um, economic agenda that had had won Labour the elections and the uh, and the defence of sterling against all costs, including the um, the radicalism of that program, gives us a kind of sorry history to look to. Maybe the the most sobering example is France under Mitterrand, where. Uh, there wasn't actually a betrayal on day one. There was a serious attempt to put in, into place the radical program commune that had been developed in opposition, but that it was only after the, the sort of battering at the hands of capital markets and the trade problems and inflation and, and so on that they, there was that austerity turn. And that really did set the European left back for a generation. And that's that's the thing that we need to be avoiding. To avoid this, we need to become very hard-nosed and strategic. And so a big piece of the book is about what exactly it would look like to, to move into that kind of 
strategizing mode. And the our, our favorite example actually is is what the neoliberals did. I think most of us are now familiar with the story of sort of early phase neoliberalism, which is the 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 sort of long journey from the wilderness of the immediate post-war years, um, when Hayek and Friedman and others convened in the Montpellerin Society and waged a war of ideas and brought their kind of antique and ridiculous economic fantasies from the margins right into the mainstream, such that they have been utterly dominant for four decades. But that wasn't just the conquest of, of ideas. And, and that story, while useful, um, can be a bit misleading if we don't then look at what happened in the immediate period before the neoliberals took power. And that's what Christine and I do a little bit of in this book. And we, we use the two examples of the, the Powell Memorandum in the United States and the Ridley Plan in the UK. Uh, the Powell Memorandum written in the 70s um, for the US Chamber of Commerce that was really about mobilizing the business community across a broad array of fronts to push back against what they saw as the utter dominance of a, a radical and liberal agenda that was taking root in, in the campuses of colleges, in the environmental movement, the civil rights movement, in gay rights, in across the board, this sort of, uh, you know, a, a progressive assault on the values of American business. And what they came up with was a plan to, mo to counter mobilize against that. And it was extraordinarily successful. Not that it was an exact blueprint, but there were certainly things that Powell identified, like the, the campaign for the courts that have been utterly successful from their point of view in terms of, of dominating the US legal system and imbuing it with, with property rights and a whole array of other uh, pieces of neoliberal thinking that um, are now appearing still in, in court decisions every day. And so uh, we need a kind of hard-nosed sense of, uh, of how to go about such an epochal transformation over time. The other example being the Ridley Plan in the, uh, in the UK, which is a terrifying document that was pulled together by Nicholas Ridley, a right-wing Thatcherite MP who'd been despondent at the performance of the Heath government in the face of the miners and others. And so led the, um, the working group that planned how to do what at that point was called denationalization. And then they coined the buzzword privatization. It was Peter Drucker, the management theorist that came up with it to put a positive spin on it. But this was a, a very serious and sober um, look at, uh, at the real balance of power um, in the UK and the fact that the public sector unions, uh, in their view, had the country by the jugular vein and that there was no point going in as, as a new Thatcher government and launching a battle on day one. What you needed to do was prepare carefully so that when the, the battle came, it would be uh, it would be winnable. And anyone who hasn't read that document, it's online. It's very short, but it's got to be one of the most uh, successful um, strategy documents in history and foreshadowing how privatization went about. And it's even got an annex predicting the need for a minor strike and the actions that could be taken to ensure that the government would win it rather than lose as Heath had done. Um, so what are our equivalents of, of this type of strategic thinking? We don't have all the answers in the book, but we do, I think, have some of the serious questions that the movement as a whole needs to be addressing. Right. So you do two things there that are really fascinating as far as I'm concerned. The, the first thing is what you've already outlined there is, is a lot of people want to talk about uh, Friedrich Hayek and the Mont Pelerin Society and the ideas that, uh, that came before the political counter-revolution of neoliberalism ushered in by the likes of Thatcher and Reagan and Pinochet and otherwise across the world. But you do something that I think is is really instructive for our moment uh, as well, which is, as you just outlined there at the, the last half, is you've reversed engineer their rise to power. And there's a tremendous amount of historical revisionism that, that happens, well, for everything. This is what we do, right? Things happen in history, and then we sort of flatten out the nuance and and the novelty. 
But that has certainly been the case for the Thatcherite project. And that's sort of what I took away from this section of the book the most is that that Thatcher counter-revolution was came almost as much of a surprise to them then as the Corbyn wave has come to us today. And in many senses, uh, the Thatcher movement started on very shaky foundations. There was quite a bit of dissension in the ranks. Tell us about that. Yeah, certainly. And I mean, this is one of those other areas where getting the balance right is really important because on the one hand, hindsight lends 2020 vision. And it's all too easy, I think, for us to look back and, and just be in awe of the way in which the uh, the right went about mobilizing and instituting and embedding neoliberalism. And it's almost kind of has this sort of quality of either historical inevitability or of some sort of, you know, extremely well-executed Machiavellian scheme that we couldn't possibly match, um, given the coordination problems of, of democratic politics versus the elite politics that they had. But what, what we actually discovered as we dug into the stories and the history and the record of how they went about doing that was was quite comforting in some ways, which and which is that, that there are a lot of parallels. I mean, Thatcher herself took power in the Conservative Party in the teeth of a, a parliamentary party that was broadly opposed to many of her ideas and still bought into elements of that sort of post-war consensus, butskalism or whatever you want to call it. Um, and these were what she christened the Tory wets, which were a majority even in her first cabinet. And so she had to play a, a, a sort of long game that also included doing things that mobilized the base of the Conservative Party, which is much more supportive than the Parliamentary Party. So there's there are parallels and, and analogies and, and instructive lessons maybe for us to take away and certainly some heart from the relative isolation of the Corbyn project when it comes to the Parliamentary Labour Party. But there are also other sort of parallels to do with the development of policy and also the development of strategy and how people felt things were going and, and so on. Um, you look into some of the key strategic thinkers that occupied some of those think tanks like the Center for Policy Studies um, or the Institute of Economic Affairs that, that sort of were the pipelines and for the transmission belt for neoliberal thinking into, into policy terms and ready for you know, shovel-ready policy development. And some of those figures were extremely despondent, um, even as, as late as, um, as 1983. Um, some of them didn't even vote for Thatcher in that election when the alternative was Michael Foote, right? And this was because they, they felt that she'd been a sellout, been a betrayer of, of the radicalism that they were hoping for and so on. But others kept the flame and kept, kept their nerve and realized that this was a, a multi-government project over a number of terms and that, that there would be a sequencing and that it was possible to do some things at certain stages that would then change the equation later on and make other things possible. And so you look at, for example, the Ridley plan, which I mentioned, and you see actually some quite modest ambitions for privatization. But once those balls got rolling and once the, the sort of the successes started to come in. They were able to take them and, and leverage further successes. And so you see some very powerful strategic moves with privatization, whereby they settle upon this idea of, uh, of floating the nationalized industries as publicly traded private companies and with share issues that the public could buy into um, and begin to create sort of a popular base for for their brand of capitalism. At the same time, there's things like the right to buy for council housing, where you could obtain your house at a 50% a discount effectively, and suddenly you're 
moving from being Labour voting council house occupiers to property owning Tories, right? And in key marginals, this was done in a very deliberate fashion. The other piece of it was that, you know, in the same way they were pulling down pillars of the of the power of their opponents, the, the public sector industries, the communities around those industries and mining and, and so on, and undermine, undermining working class communities and working class power. The very same process was also providing fuel for the development and build out of London and the city of London as, as you know, a major uh, center of international finance and preserving that role. And you see this with, with the, the problem solving that took place around the flotation of British Telecom, which at that time was something like six times larger than any other flotation that had ever taken place in, in the UK and something like three times larger than, than the global uh, record at that point, which was, I think, AT&T in the, uh, in the United States. And, and Nigel Lawson, Thatcher's chancellor, went into the city and said, how do we do this? And the, the merchant bankers at that dinner table, all but one of them said it couldn't be done because the total absorptive capacity of the stock market at that time was, you know, was, was a certain amount, was only maybe a billion a year. And uh, they were looking at doing um, something like 3.6 billion in floating BT. So instead of taking no for an answer, they figured that what they needed to do was create new financial models for, for share flotations. And then you start getting city reform and the bringing in of financial corporations to displace the old gentlemanly trading firms and the, the kind of sleepy operation that was there. And the sort of revolution extends into their own institutions. And so there's a lot of lessons, I think, for us in, in looking at how this was done. Not that there's an exact analogy. They did not have some of the demands for democracy, participation, pluralism, etc., that, that characterize the agenda that we're pursuing. But they did have a way of using strategy and, and, and basically using their successes to build momentum to move on to further successes that I think is quite important and encouraging, uh, especially given how shaky it all looked at the start. So take heart. Um, the challenge may look enormous, but once we start winning, we'll find that nothing succeeds like success, I think. That's right. I'd like to return to that neoliberal lesson just a moment, but let's, let's rewind the clock a little bit. Pardon the interruption, everybody, but this is the part of the show where I ask you to join our 400-some-odd patrons of the Dead Pundit Society and support this socialist media project. Joe Guinan and I have been outlining a number of ways that the socialist left is potentially unprepared for the challenges that lay ahead of us in the very near future. Well, I would submit to you that one of those challenges that we face as a socialist and progressive left is an inadequate media sphere. Now, that may be hard to swallow right now because you're looking around you, and if you've been on the left for more than a couple of years, you're thinking, the left has never had such a thriving media ecosystem. I mean, there's a new podcast that comes out every single week. People are starting, you know, podcasts are flourishing to the extent that people quite literally don't have enough hours in the day to consume all of the podcasts that are being released for free right now. Socialists and progressives are making their way on YouTube. You have incredible outlets like Jacobin and all the rest of them that are flourishing and spreading socialist ideas. The DSA seems to add 10,000 members every other month. So you're thinking to yourself, what do you mean, Adam? Surely you're exaggerating our shortcoming when it comes to the socialist media sphere. Well, I assure you that I'm not. 
We desperately need a much more capacious, a better resourced, and a far more experienced socialist media ecosystem if we're going to be able to communicate our message to the broader masses and face down the challenges of today's moment. Take it from me, I've been at this for two and a half years and I still have a lot to learn. The learning curve is very steep. We need people who can do this full-time for a living, dedicating their heart, their soul, their energy, their time, and their effort into this project because this is not a part-time gig that you can sort of do when you have a couple hours here and there over the course of the week or maybe on the weekends. We need people who wake up, nose to the grindstone every day, mashing these politics, communicating them to the masses, finding ever more creative ways to reach people, to convince people, to connect people, to spread ideas. This is the kind of socialist media ecosystem that we so desperately need. And this is what patrons of DPS Media believe in, in their heart and soul. And I want you to join us in this project. I know this sounds a little kitschy. This sounds a little rah-rah. You're thinking to yourself, Adam, what got into you? But I am so inspired by these Corbinites, by this transatlantic left that is developing. The prospects for 21st century socialism have never been brighter, but we need resources and able to be able to pull this off. I don't have a socialist sugar daddy, so I need you to help me keep the lights on to enable me to continue investing in new equipment to advertise these podcasts so that I can reach more and more people who aren't in this little teeny tiny online left bubble and ultimately to do some traveling and some serious video production. One of the things on the immediate horizon is that I plan on attending the DSA convention this summer. That's going to be going down in just a little over a month, but I need money and resources in order to be able to pull that off and to afford it. I want to talk to the current and future leaders of the socialist movement. I want to get some really great video, spread that message on YouTube and to connect people across the country and to initiate people into the politics of DSA and to try to connect like-minded people around a set of issues that I raise on the show on a weekly basis. So there you have it. There's the funding pitch. This is the imperative. Not all of you can run off, quit your jobs, and, and join the socialist media project. Not all of you are brilliant theoreticians. Not all of you can, can start up a policy think tank and run it like my guest today, Joe Guinan. But many of you have some resources that you can contribute in order to help keep projects like DPS Media alive and thriving. And I'm not just talking about mine, people, lest I sound like some self-interested money-grubbing bastard. I assure you that's not the case. This extended funding pitch today is broadly applicable to the entire socialist media ecosystem. Sure, I would prefer you become a patron of DPS Media. I need patrons. It's an existential demand so that I can continue releasing these podcasts and these videos and these articles and curating this community on a weekly basis. But it's not just about me. If you can't or you don't want to donate to me, donate to somebody. Whether it's Alfie Bunga Bunga, those guys over there do really great work. Whether it's Zero Books, whether it's Politics Theory Other over there in the UK, hosted by Alex Doherty. It's the Tribune Magazine podcast. People should check that out. There are any number of struggling and striving political projects out there that desperately need your support. So if you benefit from these on a weekly basis, I encourage you to dig deep to help us spread these politics because it doesn't happen by itself. It happens through the blood, the sweat, the tears, and the contributions of people like you. All right, I'll step off my soapbox now. You guys know what to do. Head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and smash that subscribe button or whatever you'd like to do to it. Patrons will typically get a B-side each week. This week, you're going to get an extended version of today's episode. 
I talked to Joe Guinan about some of the pitfalls, the traps, the contradictions of this socialist transformational project that we are outlining in today's episode. I saved the real heavy stuff for the patrons because you guys are the ones who are in this week after week, year after year. Uh, you know what we're all about here at DPS and you can handle the curveball questions and the more controversial hot takes. So everybody, don't miss that. Back to my interview with Joe Guinan. The other, I think, most interesting aspect of this middle section of the book is the way that you draw out both the achievements and the contradictions of the post-war Attlee government of 1945 to 1951. It was a labor government led by, in many senses, the dynamism and the ideas of Nye Bevan, which brought about the National Health Service, many nationalizations of of the commanding heights in a, in a limited sense. And uh, it's, it's a model that social Democrats have drawn from not only in the UK, but across the world ever since. And while it was a tremendous achievement, they fell on some, some difficulties from the very start. Prime among them, many of these ministers presumed that there were plans in place for these various nationalization projects. And that just wasn't the case. A lot of these nationalizations and rollouts had to sort of be performed on an ad hoc basis. And you and your co-author, Christine Berry, outlined some of those challenges. Tell our listeners about some of those lessons and uh, how they serve as, as cautionary tales for a potential socialist government in the United Kingdom or, or in the United States, for that matter. Absolutely. And, you know, I think there's um, there's an understandable tendency on the part of um, supporters of the Labour Party and of socialism more generally to sort of laud the example of the Attlee government and the spirit of 45 and the film that, um, that Ken Loach made and, and, and so on and, and to sort of hold this up as the shining example. And certainly it was an extraordinary accomplishment. I mean, the, the most radical economic program in British history. Um, they brought the Bank of England, coal, steel, um, the railways, civil aviation, all the utilities, electricity, gas, water um, into public hands and took advantage of this sort of unique confluence of circumstances with the end of the Second World War, you know, the defeat of fascism, the role that the left had played in that, the mass influx of workers into trade unions and into political parties. And so, you know, there's that plus the, the program of economic reconstruction and the growth that that brought allowed for um, a very unusual sort of moment. And, and you know, we should recognize that. And they, they did um, some tremendous restructuring of the of the British economy, ended up with a, a public sector workforce of 18 percent of the of the total, a fifth of the economy in public ownership, half of annual capital expenditure being, you know, accounted for by the public sector. And, you know, a dramatic shift in, in ownership and, and power that, that was durable and that lasted. And uh, included in that as well, from, we were just talking about strategy, was some you know, very important moves against sections of private capital that had been very disruptive uh, in the uh, pre-war period. Uh, in particular, the mine and steel owners that had caused strikes and set the labor movement back and so on. And so there was a sense of sort of liquidating the economic basis of their opponents um, in, in just the way that Thatcher subsequently went on to do as well. But as you say, um, there were challenges um, to do with this. And, and there's an analogy with the moment that we're in now. Having been calling for a nationalization of coal, for example, for, for decades, when the government under Attlee took power, there weren't, in fact, plans in place for what that should actually look like. And it all had to be done on the fly. There's a 
nice anecdote of Manny Shinwell, who was the Minister of Fuel and Power, who had been sponsored by the Mine Workers Union and very close to the miners and, and was responsible for bringing the, the mines into, into public ownership. Um, and Shinwell um, went looking for plans and found that there, there was absolutely nothing in the archives of the Trade Union Congress, apart from, I think he found one pamphlet, which I've managed to get hold of a copy of myself, actually, um, which was written by James Griffiths, and it was called Glow, which is coal in Welsh. It was in Welsh, this pamphlet. That's the only plan for how to go about doing it. Now, we actually know, if you look at the other archives, you know, of the Institute for Workers' Control and others, that the, the miners themselves had been developing sort of plans for what the mines should look like if they were under democratic ownership and control. But these hadn't made themselves, they hadn't made their way into into the archives and into the policymaking um, uh, processes of the Labour Party or the trade union movement. And so there was this sort of intellectual void at the heart of nationalisation. And what happened was they reached for the most obvious things that were to hand. And Herbert Morrison. Peter Mandelson's grandfather was the one who had the model. He'd been very active in the BBC and in London London passenger rail transport. And so the model that was uh, that was available there was this idea of a public corporation, sort of somewhat independent and at arm's length from democratic control, very top down in its organization run by a, a board of directors. And this became the blueprint for much of Labour's nationalization. And what you then found uh, in sociological terms is that the kinds of people that ended up on the boards of the nationalized industries were the same sorts of people that had been running them when they were in private hands, judges, generals, bankers, and, and others. And there was very little attempt to kind of to fill out the governance, even of this public corporation model, with the types of people that would have brought new perspectives and um, labor movement interests um, to the table. So in gas, there'd been a long tradition of municipal ownership of gas, but so public local ownership, but uh, but those people weren't tapped to to serve on the corporations and so on. So in a way, there was a huge missed opportunity to democratize public ownership and embed it, and it left it with a, a huge Achilles heel and a vulnerability, not a real sense of ownership and control by the workforce or by the community. And so these things, when, when the economic crisis later struck in, in the 70s, they were kind of sitting ducks for privatization without being firmly embedded in, in communities and, and without people feeling true ownership and control over them. So this is a lesson that I think is very much at the heart of the way that John McDonnell is thinking about doing public ownership. If we bring rail and water uh, and electricity and the post office back into public hands, it should be done in a, a democratic and decentralized and, and plural way that makes it much harder to unwind and reprivatize in the future. That's right. I want to talk more about that in just a moment, but I'd be remiss in failing to lay out this entire quote by Manny Shinwell. Uh, this is Atlee's Minister of Fuel and Power, as he articulated in November of 1945. You quote in your book, he laments, we are about to take over the mining industry. It is not so easy as it looks. <laughs> I've been talking about nationalization for 40 years, but the implications of the transfer of property have never occurred to me. Now, I mean, we sh we could look at that quote, you know, uh, many decades on and, and think to, you know, come on, Manny, you're asleep at the wheel, my friend. What have you been up to? What have you been doing? What, you know, <laughs> what did you think was going to happen? You know, but let's look to our own moment today. And how many of us, you know, dear, dear listener, I'm, I'm talking to you and myself and all of us. It's a provocation for us all. It's a challenge to us all that your book is trying to lay out here. We need this sense of urgency about discovering what we do not know. 
and how, how you know most of us would call for the nationalization of the banks, certainly the nationalization of uh, utilities and basic needs and perhaps even the commanding heights of the economy. But how we go about doing this, as far as I'm concerned, for most of us, is, is just kind of a, a blank space in our brains. We, we hope and presume that there are other smarter people out there like yourself, Joe, <laughs> who are thinking through the particulars of this. But we also know in our heart of hearts that that's not the essence of socialism. That's social democracy. That's delivering these, uh, you know, these transformations, these reforms from on high, handed down by elites without any kind of uh, co-participation by the masses. And that's certainly not the highest ideal of socialism. And it's certainly not what John McDonnell is aspiring to. So talk to us a little bit about this kind of give and take, this, this co-creation of this democratic economy that uh, John McDonnell is spearheading among his other uh, co- comrades and colleagues over there in the UK. Absolutely. And I think this is, again, where we need to be pretty sophisticated in avoiding either or choices. On the one hand, we're going to need shovel-ready policy so that we can move very, very quickly and begin to deliver even under very difficult economic circumstances. And that's going to require a degree of, of sort of technocratic policy and, uh, and other competency that is not something that comes from mass bodies and, and movements. And so we, we're going to need to identify friendly sections of the elite. Uh, we're going to need bankers to run the National Investment Bank. We're going to need regulators that understand how corporate capture has been operating and, and are willing to, to, to work with us to unwind that in the name of democracy and the greater good. We're going to need to be able to peel off sections of, uh, of the elites and the professional classes who understand the challenges of climate change and of inequality and of the rising far-right tide and are prepared to to work with us. And so, you know, at some level, we do need actually to form some partnerships with sections of the establishment and also of capital to go about doing that. But I think that's only one piece of the picture. And a much more important piece is the development of participatory policymaking and of a a sort of a democratic approach to, to government and to governance that hasn't really characterized any previous government in the UK. And this is captured by John McDonnell in his phrase, uh, his ringing phrase that he uses, which is that when we go into government, we all go into government together. And he's being very influenced, I think, in in that claim by his experience of working in the Greater London Council in the 80s, when and Hillary Wainwright speaks and writes eloquently about this, where the doors were really thrown open for, for City Hall and the London government, so that the ordinary citizen was able to walk the corridors of the GLC. And there were participatory forums in which bus passengers could contribute to decisions about bus routes and such. And so the other strong element of the program that's that's pointing in this direction is the notion that we don't just come into office and take control of the levers of what are actually, you know, what is actually the, the most centralized state in, in Western Europe and just sort of move them from the right to the left, if you will, in a sort of a technocratic sort of Keynesian manner. Although, you know, certainly there's some opportunities to do that and we should take them judiciously. But we also need to be actually distributing power outwards from the center. And there's a very important element of decentralization and democracy, which John McDonnell calls the watchwords of our socialism. 
And we see this in the way in which the consultation exercise is underway at the moment around how to do democratic public ownership. So there's an opportunity for party members and civil society groups and interest groups and stakeholders and others to weigh in um, and be part of the discussion about how we would really go about creating, for example, regional boards of governance that could oversee the newly renationalized industries at scales less than the nation of a, as a whole, so that all decision making isn't concentrated in Whitehall, but that goes out into communities and into regions and to the devolved nations and so forth. And so I think part of the excitement and possibility of Corbynism is really about bringing government much, much closer back to ordinary citizens and to giving them much greater say over the economic decisions that affect their lives uh, in a way that they will be very reluctant to give up and that will be difficult to reverse and that becomes the basis for a new sort of multi-decade political economic settlement. And ironically, if you want examples of this, one place you can look is the United States. What I think people don't fully understand is the extent to which Britain is just such an extreme outlier when it comes to privatization. If you look at the total value of assets across the OECD uh, between 1980 and 1996, fully 40% of them were privatized in the UK, uh, which is a massive transfer of, uh, of ownership from public to private hands. There was also a privatization and outsourcing agenda in the United States, but it took a different form. And my colleague at the Democracy Collaborative, Thomas Hanna, has written a book on this, Our Commonwealth, which unearths this, uh, this sort of surprising story of the continued resiliency of forms of public ownership and public enterprise in the United States and you know, hypothesizes that in some way this is because of the US federal system and the fact that things are decentralized and that people have more local ownership and control over them. So you know, examples like Nebraska where every single resident and business gets their power from either a, a municipally owned or a cooperative energy utility, many of which are, are pretty democratic and have open forums for, for decision making. Or you also look at sort of anomalous examples like the Tennessee Valley Authority, which for ridiculous budget reasons, the Obama administration proposed privatization of and saw a rebellion among the senators and congressmen from that area of the states around the Tennessee Valley, and that, that many of whom were Republicans, uh, deep red states, right? All of whom were saying, no chance are you privatizing this because we know what will happen. There'll be underinvestment. The uh, pr prices and bills will go up and we'll have a rebellion on the part of our constituents. And so it didn't happen. And they beat it back. Similarly, um, you know, the, you would have thought that the U.S. Postal Service would have been a sitting duck for privatization in the way that the Royal Mail was, given the lobbying of UPS and FedEx and, and others. And yet that has been resisted, even though the, the, the Postal Service has had its, its hands tied behind its back with pension obligations and, and other things. They've never been able to outright privatize it. And part of the reason in the U.S., I think, is this decentralized nature. And so this is uh, another of these examples where a kind of transatlantic conversation about how to go about these things throws up unexpected, surprising, and particularly fruitful sort of insights into how we go about embedding this democratic economy for the long haul. That's right. This, uh, I'm going to have Thomas Hanna on the show uh, very soon in the coming weeks as part of this series on you know not only Corbynomics but also public ownership and uh, planning for a socialist transition and a socialist government either in the U United States or the United Kingdom or both. Uh, so we'll talk much more about that at length. I, but you know, as I mentioned at the opening of the show, uh, s some months ago there was a, a, 
a small cohort of Corbinites came over to the United States and you very generously hosted them. And I was a part of that little gathering and we were at a bar somewhere in Washington, D.C. having some beers. And I believe it was you that said this. And it, it brought to mind uh, your previous comment, just brought to mind this little anecdote. You said something to the effect, and correct me if I'm wrong, it wasn't you. You said something to the effect of the U.K. has totally the wrong system, but the right set of politics and capacities in place right now. The United States has the perfect system, but the absence of politics and capacities. When we talk about the perfect system, it's this kind of federal system that enables these uh, experimental and and perhaps very stable and long-lasting democratic institutions that Thomas Hanna outlines in his book that will surprise our audience, I'm sure, if you haven't if, if people out there haven't looked into the history of public ownership in the United States. It's quite shocking to see uh, how it permeates our society in many ways. Of course, it has been undermined by neoliberalism and market logics, but the the, the shell, the core of it is still there. Was that was it you that, that told me that little anecdote? Yeah, I think we were having that conversation because there's another piece to it as yeah, well. It's, it's really the, fascinating. Sort of sh- yeah, the shape of the of the left, respectively. You know, the strength of ideology and politics um, on the UK side, but also the lack of resources and, in some senses, know-how. And there's a, also a fruitful possibility for exchange there because what you've now got is this burgeoning US left, which does have resources, technological know-how, the sort of digital revolution that's taken place in in campaigning and so mm, forth. That's and, right. That's right. Um, and so, you know, if, if we could marry those two um, across the Atlantic, that would be that would be a very strong basis for this notion of a, a transatlantic left. And, and if I may, um, one idea that's probably worth kicking around and I'd sort of like to put out there for your listeners and others is, you know, that there may well be, as you said at the very beginning of the program, a snap general election in the UK. And I would encourage people on the U.S. left that are getting interested in socialism and in radical politics to in many ways see that as a kind of opening battle that will have huge significance and potential impact on their own prospects for success. If we can erect you know, the model of a, of a socialist government in the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world and make it a success – the spillover effects of that are going to be absolutely tremendous. And so I wonder if there isn't a kind of potential for a little bit of a sort of international brigades type operation on the U.S. left to begin to move people over and volunteer capacities to bring some of this know-how about how to do digital campaigning, the like of which the U.K. has never seen. And that could really be pivotal um, in a, a sh- you know, what are very short election campaign cycles over there. And this would also be a nice reversal of what usually happens, which is, you know, the center left has always made the trek over to Little Rock as it was back in, in the 90s to volunteer for the Clinton campaign or again recently. And those sorts of ties b- built around a sort of West Wing sensibility exist. We need grassroots equivalents of those. That, and some of it's already happening around the Green New Deal and, and in other areas. But I think, um, uh, you know, imagine if 150 of the top organizers and uh, and people with digital capacity and other things were to flood the UK for, for five weeks um, in an election campaign cycle and work with momentum and work with others, it would be it would be potentially decisive in putting labor over the uh, over the finishing line. That's a very good point. A lot of people in the United States and my listeners here might kind of scoff at that idea because the idea of digital organizing and, and this, this uh, 
these platforms that uh, people in the Bernie Sanders campaign have innovated starting in 2015 and then even into the present. I, I myself have kind of played fly on the wall, done a little research and taken part in a couple of trainings uh, produced by the Bernie Sanders campaign. And they're kind of in the beta testing phases right now. Not a, I think only just a, a few thousand people have taken part in these online trainings, um, these seminars that they've have. They've, they've rolled out over the past couple of months, but the app is called BURN, all caps, B-E-R-N. It's an acronym. I can't remember offhand what it stands for, but it's a really innovative way of mobilizing people and educating people about primary dates, primary requirements, what kind of registration you need to have, where, where do you go to vote, for example. All of these things in America, which are so opaque due to the archaic and uh, arcane you know, nature of our electoral rules and policies and the, the way that the elites have historically made this as an impossible – impossible is possible to vote. I mean it, the history there is really oh, horrendous. But anyway, I digress. Uh, the point being that people in the United States would look at these, these technological fixes and kind of roll their eyes oftentimes and say like, ah, you know, this is what the, this is what the, the, the Beltway wonks do. They make an app and you know, they hope that that will sort of solve their problems. Well, that might be right because we are kind of lacking the politics here in a sense. But you take that platform over to, uh, you know, a, a nation like, like, you know, like in the British context and, and you implement it amongst a, a rank and file that is motivated, has the right politics, uh, has a government, you know, that they're, they're proposing that can really implement some serious changes. And you've got a marriage of, of, of two really exciting things there. Um, which completely changes the game. And I think it opens our eyes over here in the United States to the potentialities in a really new way. So you're right. I think, you know, that, that kind of necessity of bringing, bringing our strengths and weaknesses together and thinking through this in a really strategic way is absolutely essential. And if I may say just for myself right now, I'm not having these episodes with, with these, with these Brits, you know, for nothing, just, I don't know. I, I enjoy your accent or something like that, or, uh, your food is delightful. It's, it's that I think <laughs> that's certainly not the case, but I, I, I think that, that, that this is an absolutely essential project for us to engage in right now. Um, final question. We talk a lot about neoliberalism here in the United States. One of the things that we are trying to uh, engage in, and it's a word that I've stolen not only from you, but also from James Meadway. I've had on the program recently and a couple other corporate nights. You guys are, are, are waving this like a flag and I love it. What does post-neoliberalism mean to you? <laughs> it's a good question. And I think it sort of it's easy to get lost in a sort of definitional struggle around what exactly the neoliberal paradigm is. But I think what we take from what the neoliberals um, were able to do is is potentially powerful in how we go about constructing the next political economic settlement. You know, they, they told some very simple stories that were, most of them, preposterous on the face of it. Things like a, a rising tide uh, lifts all boats, or that business is the, the wealth creator and the jobs creator, when, of course, the every imperative of market forces on business enterprises is to shed labor and, and reduce costs as, as much as possible. And, you know, yet these stories have a sort of folk power that almost anyone on the street can recite them to you government is the problem, not the solution. Markets are the most efficient way of organizing production, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And these things sort of hung together and almost formed a sort of highest common denominator around which people with very otherwise differing views, differing interests, differing alignments were able to pursue a very successful 
political project that has totally dominated most of the world economically for the past several decades. And we're kind of waking up from that paradigm and that model. It's like we've all been plugged into the matrix and, and suddenly we've, yeah. we've, taken, we've chosen to take the red pill. And the, the financial crisis played a big role in this. And what we're finding, I think, is that, you know, the, the, there's a return to a lot of the thinking that was taking place as a critique of the previous settlement, which is the Keynesian sort of post-war social democratic settlement, the, the crisis of which gave the opportunity for neoliberalism. But there was, a, there was an alternative that was also being developed, a, a road not taken, if you like, that was really a pathway to a much more democratic economy. And you saw this with factory occupations and work-ins and the sort of rise of cooperatives as a, a business model that the left was embracing and new forms of participation in public policy making, co-production of, of services, the sort of you know agenda around democracy and, and empowerment, civic engagement. And all of these things were, were bubbling up, but in a way were sort of foreshortened and truncated by neoliberalism. And then the Ice Age set in and we lost several decades. But what we're now finding is that the, you know, what was possible during the upswing of neoliberalism when they crushed us may actually be different in the downswing of neoliberalism when this crisis is their crisis, when it's a crisis of financialization, when it's a crisis of, of inequality. And so... The return to and sort of updating of that agenda that throws out a lot of those nostrums that says we are not about boosting growth at all costs and assuming that some sort of modest sort of amelioration around the margins is the most that we can hope for. But actually, we want to roll up our sleeves and get our hands sort of deep into the institutional relationships at the heart of the economy and reconfigure them in a way that they naturally begin to produce the outcomes that we are we're seeking in terms of distribution, in terms of sustainability, in terms of equity, in terms of regional disparities and, and regional development and so forth. And, and so what's, what's taking form, I think, is a body of, of economic thought, um, and some of us call it the democratic economy, which is an economy that's capable of actually delivering on the aspirations of, of ordinary people, of taking us beyond a lot of these financialized and sort of deracinated and destabilizing economic forms that have been at the heart of the uh, of, of the neoliberal project and its dominance, and and it's a and it's an exciting moment. But what we need is to to crystallize this into a into a paradigm that's strong enough that it has stories that people can understand. One of them is probably around the separation of the economy from society, which has been a clever move that the neoliberals made. But we need to put it back in there. We need to re-embed it. We need to put the economy back in society and in nature and also in morality. Um, it's you know another of these stories that the neoliberals were able to tell was that you just leave the economy to do its own thing and through the workings of the invisible hand, um, which was misrepresented in terms of what Smith uh, actually meant, by the way. But, you know, by leaving these immoral forces to do their work, we'll actually get a moral outcome. Well, it's nonsense. We actually need a moral economy that's capable of reparative justice towards those communities on which, you know, on whose backs um, it's it's being extracted for um, for time immemorial. 
Um, we need to be able to to deliver good jobs and uh, and good living standards and environmental sustainability as a core output of of the way in which the economy works, and not something we're just trying to bolt on through regulation and so on. And so I think you start to see in some of the policy design and some of the institutions that are at the heart of this this new post neoliberal economics, the sort of the coming together of a pretty coherent body of thought that um, that is capable of standing up and and replacing neoliberalism, if only we have time. And speaking of running out of time, we are indeed out of time for today's A-Side. Thanks again to Joe Guinan. Patrons of the Dead Pundit Society will be getting an extended version of today's chat with Joe, where we go all in and talk about the pitfalls, contradictions, and traps of the Corbinite Project and, you know, by extension, the Sanders Project here in the United States. We are definitely cheerleaders of these political projects, but we are not Pollyannish by any stretch of the imagination. We recognize fully that this is an incredibly risky game that we are playing, but we must play it nonetheless because we don't have a choice. We're staring down the barrel of a loaded gun, quite literally, with cataclysmic climate change uh, on the very near horizon. So I gave you an extended funding pitch in the middle of today's episode. I won't bore you anymore with that. Uh, I think I've already made it quite clear how I feel about the importance of funding this new left socialist media ecosystem. But if you want to get access to the extended version of today's episode, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a subscriber today. Help us get this word out on YouTube, on podcast via our new website. You can find that at deadpundits.com. I'm going to be continuing to build up that project. Hopefully it's going to be a very valuable resource to the socialist left in the near future. All right. Thanks again to Joe Guinan for joining us. He and his co-author, Christine Berry, have written a very important book. People should pick that up and we'll see you same time, same place next week. <laughs> <laughs>